Hi there, and welcome to Even If, a weekly podcast about standing firm when life is shaking. I'm your host, Kelly Strife. Strife rhymes with wife. And together, we're finding the courage to approach uncertain and unwanted seasons of life through a posture of faith that stands firm and declares, even if he doesn't, he is still good. I've sat on this episode for months now because I wanted to make sure I could share it from a place of healing and not hurt. I wanted to be certain that there wasn't any bitterness or unresolved anger in my spirit. And honestly, it's taken a little while for me to be sure of that. Because one of the deepest wounds that we felt when we lost Imogen was actually caused by the church. It was caused by the local church we were attending at the time. And I've hinted at some of the ways that church caused us pain, but I haven't ever addressed it directly. So here's the honest truth. The only thing that was more painful than losing Imogen was the way our church responded or didn't respond to be more precise. And it pains me to say that because I love the church. My dad has been a pastor for 40 years. We actually just celebrated his retirement this weekend. He has loved and served the local church for his entire adult life. And I've worked in churches for years in youth ministry and in missions. I love the church. And so many people who represent the global church, many people who make up the church as a whole, have loved us so incredibly well through this season. So please don't hear this as a knock on the church as a whole. Actually, don't hear this as a knock even on that local church we attended. I am not sharing this to criticize or shame them in any way. That church is made up of wonderful people, people who love Jesus deeply and people who are called to be a light in our city, in our community in Atlanta. These are people who get so many things right. But in our experience, they got this wrong. And that doesn't make them a bad church. That doesn't make them a failure. That doesn't minimize the incredible good that they do. But it does mean there's room to improve. And so many churches have room to improve here too. And here's why. Our faith is solid. Our faith is built on years of walking with Jesus, of learning his voice, of knowing his character and trusting his track record. Our foundation was as secure as they come. But when Imogen died, our faith was the most vulnerable it's ever been. If there was ever going to be a moment that I walked away from Jesus, that was probably it. The sadness and depression and darkness and disappointment was so intense that it felt like we were being crushed beneath the weight of it. I understand the phrase from 2 Corinthians 4.8 like I never have before. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We felt the pressing every second of every day, but we weren't crushed because of God in us. God expanded us. He strengthened us. He bore the weight for us. No matter what the church did or didn't do, we knew that. We trusted it. We experienced the supernatural understanding of it. But not everyone does. Not everyone has the foundation. Not everyone knows how to allow God to bear the weight for them. So when our church neglected us, when we needed them the most, our faith wasn't shaken. We didn't get to experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit through them, but it didn't shatter an already shaky faith. 
but for many people, it would have. For many people, this was the moment their faith would have been shored up or struck down, and it might be the only moment the church has to get in. Desperate seasons lead people to desperate places, and for many people, turning to the church is the most desperate act they can make. And I want churches to get this right. So today I'm sharing the story of how our church neglected us when we needed them the most, how God used a different church to usher in healing, and I'm giving some really practical tools the church can use to respond to people walking through grief. Imogen died sometime on a Thursday. She was born without a heartbeat on Friday, and we were discharged from the hospital on Saturday. We handed her body over to a nurse who took her away, and that's the last time we saw her. And then Peter packed up all of our belongings, the giant pink labor ball we'd carried in with us two days before, the diaper bag with blankets and clothes that she never got to wear, the boppy pillow and breast pump that we carried in, hoping that maybe we'd need to use them. And then they wheeled me out in a wheelchair through the same halls, down the same elevator that most women go through holding their new babies. They did take us out a different door, though. And Peter and I drove home, silent, empty, with no idea what we were supposed to do next. And eight days later, we went to church. It was Sunday, and we didn't know what else to do, so we went to church that day. And the week after that, and the week after that, And for about six weeks straight, we showed up at our church. And I showed up with cabbage leaves stuffed in my bra because it was supposed to help my milk dry up. I wore two layers of pads because I didn't want to risk anything leaking out between all of our standing and sitting. I wore sunglasses through every single service. Our church seating at the time was in the round. So that meant wherever you sat, you were facing somebody else. And I ugly cried every single week. And week after week, we sang songs about God's goodness with tears streaming down our faces. And no one ever said a word. We made eye contact with people we knew and they quickly looked away. Some people knew our situation and some people who were completely unaware But not one time did anybody speak to us. Not one time did anyone ask us what was going on. Not one time did anyone offer to pray or bring us dinner or acknowledge this gaping wound in our lives. Not one single time. No one from that church ever reached out to us. We never got a phone call or a letter or a card in the mail. And the last Sunday we were there, we found ourselves sitting closer to the front than we normally did. We were in the middle of a row instead of the end, and that was the first mistake. Friends, when you are grieving, sit on the aisle and don't move over no matter how many times they ask you to scoot to the center. That aisle is yours. But we found ourselves in the middle, and we'd already cried our way through the music at the beginning of the service, and the pastor was beginning to preach. And in a really unfortunate situation of timing that wasn't anybody's fault, he and his wife were pregnant and expecting a baby girl in just a few weeks after seven years of infertility. So it was good and right that they were excited about the season of life they were in. But he started his message sharing their excitement. And then he just kept going and going and going, sharing how they were nesting and preparing and waiting for the day she was going to be born. 
And I could feel this groan rising up from the pit of my stomach. I felt it before it came out of my lips, but I couldn't move fast enough to make it out in time. So I was climbing over people in our row, facing half the congregation because we were seated in the round and then running out as fast as I could toward the door before the sound escaped, but I couldn't quite get there before the sobs just took over. And this whole room watched while I stumbled toward the door and Peter ran out after me. We never went back. And we never heard a word. And let me be clear about a couple of things. This church wasn't callous and unfeeling. They simply weren't aware or informed. The people who might have known how to respond weren't the ones who knew what was going on with us. And the ones who did know our story just didn't know what to do. No one was out to get us or abandon us or neglect us in our hour of need. And their silence happened to be exacerbated by the way our season of loss lined up with the pastor's season of life. That wasn't his fault. It wasn't the church's fault. And it wasn't something they should have changed. It just was what it was. But we were there in all of our leaking, bleeding, snotting, sobbing glory. Week after week, we were there. And we're in your church too. Some of us are showing up in sunglasses, grief written all over our faces, and causing scenes when we leave. And others are there in their Sunday best, smiles on their faces, their suffering neatly tucked away. But church, whether you mean to or not, You are communicating something about the pain we carry and the God who meets us there. And we desperately need to know he's there. We desperately need to know he's not only good when the story turns out well in the end. We desperately need to know there's room for our sobs and our questions and our doubts. We need to know our pain is welcomed and shared by the churches we attend. Are you communicating that well? Are you communicating your intentions in the way you honor people's pain in your church? I've got three questions that I would ask to see whether your intentions are coming through. First, does your message on Sunday make room for people's pain? Does it acknowledge the suffering people are carrying in? The very first Sunday, I've shared this on the podcast before, but the very first Sunday we showed up at church, the worship leader invited us to look for evidence of God's goodness in our lives. He challenged us to not just sing songs about God's goodness, but to genuinely take time to notice it in our lives. And it was a good challenge. It was an invitation to let our worship be more than just words we sing. But he continued by saying, Just this morning, I was holding my six-week-old baby, and I was rocking him while he ate, and as I stared into his eyes, I thought, how could you look at this face and not believe God is good? How could you hold a baby and not see God's goodness in your life? And that was a sincere reflection on God's kindness to him. But it sent a message to those of us who were carrying deep pain. It said, We see God's goodness when things go right, when we get what we want, in newborn babies and paychecks and answered prayers. And that wasn't an incorrect statement. It was an incomplete statement. But as leaders, your words create the framework for people to experience God. And if your words are only building a structure of victory, of happiness, of gain, of a pain-free life, 
then you've just shut out a significant portion of your people. Not to mention that you're building a foundation that won't withstand the storms when they come, even for those who aren't in a season of suffering right now. The framework has to be secure when you're rocking your newborn baby and when you're burying them in the ground. Are you preparing people for both? So how do we do that? How do we make room for people's pain in our corporate worship gatherings? Well, one practical way is by developing a practice of corporate lament. Lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow, and it's found all throughout Scripture. We read it in the Psalms and Lamentations, literally a book of lament. Some of our favorite passages in the Bible are born from lament. But how often do we do this together on Sundays? Whether it's grief over something happening in the world or an event that we're all experiencing together in our community or the personal losses that people are carrying on their own, creating space to lament the things that affect us and the things that don't affect us sends a message that our pain is welcome, our suffering is seen, and we can show up just as we are. There's room for pain here. I'd also ask what you're celebrating in the testimonies that you share. Are you only telling stories that turn out well in the end? Are you only sharing the before and after come full circle, tied up in a bow testimonies that demonstrate God's power, but not his presence? There's power in the testimony of suffering, of telling the stories that aren't over yet, of acknowledging that pain is not weakness and it doesn't mean God isn't good. Telling stories of how God turned our bad for good is incredibly important in strengthening our spirits to remember that God can do the impossible. But telling the stories of people still in the desert, desperately holding on to hope, wondering if this season will ever end, that strengthens our faith not only in the God who makes it right in the end, but the God who also walks with us while it isn't. Where do these stories show up in your message? And your words. After Peter and I ran out of church that last Sunday we were there, we realized it was time to connect with a new church body. We didn't have the emotional capacity to visit and evaluate multiple churches, so we picked one primary criteria for this season and we selected a new church from that. We wanted to go somewhere that acknowledged the pain we were carrying and celebrated the fact that this wasn't the end. We wanted to hear about Jesus and remember that he had suffered and he wept and he experienced deep pain and loss here on earth. And also that he had defeated death forever. So even though our pain was real now, it was temporary in light of what Jesus had done. The first Sunday we visited a new church, they were beginning a series on the book of James and teaching about how we face the trials we experience here on earth. And they acknowledged our real trials, our real pain. And they also made space for us to consider that these trials could be producing something eternally valuable inside us. So we didn't visit anywhere else, and that's where we've been ever since. Okay, second, I would ask, are your staff and leaders equipped to care for the people on behalf of the church as a whole? We didn't really have direct relationships with the pastors of the church we were in. They probably didn't know our names, and honestly, they're still probably unaware of our circumstance. And I am acutely aware of the weight that pastors carry to care for people well. They can't do it all. You can't do it all. 
the beautiful thing is that it doesn't always have to be them. For several years in my 20s, I worked in youth ministry and I heard from a youth pastor at Saddleback Church in California, Doug Fields, for years. And one of the messages that he shared probably 15 years ago, a story he told us, has stuck with me and I've never forgotten it. He was a youth pastor and a student in his youth group was in an accident and ended up in the hospital while Doug was a couple hours away in another county. But as soon as he heard about the accident, he headed straight back to the city and went to the hospital. And when he got there, visiting hours were already over, but as a pastor, he had access outside the normal hours. So he went straight to the admissions desk and asked to go see the student. And the nurse told him he wouldn't be allowed in. And so he kindly explained that he was the pastor and the nurse looked at him and said, no, you aren't. And he didn't really know how to respond. So he started to get a little defensive and he said, well, yes, I am. And the nurse said, I know you weren't his pastor because his pastor has already been here and it wasn't you. And when he tracked down the issue, he discovered that it was actually one of the volunteer youth leaders that he had been training and mentoring and developing. And they'd already been to the hospital. And when he couldn't get in on his own, he told him he was the pastor. So they'd let him in. And Doug said he had never been more proud because this guy got it. He wasn't waiting for the youth pastor or the senior pastor or the executive director to show up. He showed up. He walked in and he represented the entire church with his presence. It wasn't long after Peter and I had started attending this new church that they announced they were offering Mother's Day front porch photo sessions. And I was a little uncomfortable, but I decided to sign up. And I made a note that our session would include us holding a photo of our daughter that had died almost a year earlier. We didn't want the photographer to be caught off guard by that or put in an awkward position. So we wrote this brief note and it actually was in the section where you were supposed to write parking instructions. So I didn't even know if she'd see it. There were dozens of families that were signing up for this. And so we just hoped for the best after we made this note. And the photographer came and she took the photos and she had read the note and she captured these beautiful photographs of our family. But the real surprise came a few hours later. A staff member from this large church we were attending had seen our note to the photographer in the parking instructions. And she realized that this would be our first Mother's Day after Imogen died. So she ordered this beautiful bouquet of flowers, drove them to our house herself, and presented them to us with a note from the church saying they wanted to honor me as a mom and wanted me to know I was seen and remembered on our first Mother's Day without Imogen. And I was shocked. I was blown away that someone had even read the note, amazed that they'd taken action even months after Imogen had died, and so honored that this staff member would personally deliver these flowers to our door. And God brought so much healing to my heart that day. Because God loves us through his people. And the action of this woman on behalf of this church was really an extension of God's love and care for me. He sees me. He remembers me. And he gave me the gift of knowing that other people remembered me too. What was so remarkable to me is that this staff member had been trained to notice the need, empowered to take action, and authorized to represent the entire church with her act. We don't always need the preacher to show up at our door, although sometimes that's helpful too. But we do need to know that the body is aware of our pain, of our weakness, of our vulnerability, 
and shows up when we need it the most. All right, third, do people know how and where to communicate their loss? I'm a pastor's kid through and through over here. I don't remember very many vacations that our whole family made it all the way through because it wasn't unusual for my dad to get a call that someone was sick or someone had passed away or they were in the hospital. And when necessary, he'd head back home early to make sure he was there. When I was a kid, the church and the manse that we lived in across the street actually shared a phone number. So when people called the church, it rang in our home and vice versa. So we weren't ever allowed to answer the phone because it might be somebody calling for the pastor and we didn't want them to be confused. I am used to the phone ringing all hours of the day and the night with somebody calling my dad. But not everyone knows their pastor well. Not everyone is comfortable communicating their loss or their pain. So how is the church supposed to know? How are you supposed to find out when something happens? I said before, the pastors of our church probably never even knew what was going on. So I'd ask the question, how should they have known? How should we have communicated? What would the appropriate process be for letting the church know our baby died and we needed extra care? Members of the worship team knew. People on their leadership team knew. Staff members knew. Should they have passed the message along? Should we have filled out a card on Sunday morning? Was there an email address we should have known or a form with a box requesting prayer? I don't know. What I do know is that people who are in crisis don't usually have the mental or emotional energy to figure that out. So as a staff, you might have a wonderful process in place, but if people don't know what it is, they're unlikely to find it when they're suffering and in pain. When Peter and I were looking for a new church, that became one of the questions we asked. What is your philosophy of pastoral care? Who provides it? How do we access it? Who would show up at the hospital when we need them? We realized that this was our responsibility to understand the process so we didn't find ourselves in the same situation again. If you're on a church staff, it's not just important to clarify this process as a team, but ask people in your congregation if they know, do they know who to call? Do they know how to ask for help? And not just the people that show up every Sunday and Wednesday and host small groups in their home, ask the people on the fringes. Do you know how to get help from us when you need it? Do you know how to communicate when something goes wrong? Churches aren't perfect. Not the one we attended before, not the one we're in now. I don't expect them to always get it right. And as Peter and I processed wounds from that season, we realized we had a responsibility in it too. There are things we could and should have done ahead of time to make it easier for ourselves when Imogen died. And we're putting many of those things into practice now. But it is one of the holiest acts of worship to walk with people through suffering, to acknowledge their pain, to honor their loss. And I desperately want the church to get this right because first of all, it might be the difference in someone turning to or from Jesus. And second of all, because I've experienced how healing it is to our hearts when the church makes room for grief. I know this week's episode will be really healing for some of you. If this is a message you know the church needs to hear, would you take a moment to leave a rating and a review? A quick message sharing how this message has benefited you might just help someone else find healing too. And it might be challenging for those of you who are in a church or on a church staff. If you're in a leadership role, I've created a downloadable checklist to evaluate how well you're corporately making space for pain and grief. There's a link in the episode notes or you can access it at 
www.theevenifpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.